Hello, I'm Earl Fontenelle. This is the Schwepp, the Secret History of Western Esotericism podcast, online at www.schwepp.net. And today we're speaking with Kevin McLaughlin, Senior Lecturer in Media Communications at the University of the West of England in Bristol, who's also doing a PhD on a culture and a cultural production at the University of Northampton, a man with fingers in many pies. But especially interestingly, he organizes a conference called Trans States. You can find the link in the notes to this interview. And Trans States is a really, really interesting affair. Kevin, thank you so much for coming on to talk to us. Yeah, thanks so much. I, I have a huge admiration for this project, so I'm really glad to be involved. Top man. Tell us about Trans States. So Trans States is a research network and a transdisciplinary conference and esoteric art exhibition. So the first one was in 2016. And it's kind of, it's a particular project which sort of seeks to bring together esoteric artists, esoteric practitioners, scholars from the academy and independent scholars on a very level playing field, looking at sort of the uh, the valuable interactions that can happen between those seemingly disparate groups. But actually, you know, my observation always was that there's like in the broader esoteric community, there's a lot more interaction and crossover than uh, is necessarily immediately recognized. And I just wanted to, and also it was it was an attempt to break out of some of the constrictions of the more traditional academic conference model and essentially put on an event that would be the kind of thing that I would find much more value uh, in going to. More fun as well, let's face it. More fun, that's true, yeah. And when you go to some of the more traditional academic conferences, it's always outside of the official program that a lot of the really important things happen, a lot of the actual bringing together of people and ideas and, as we say, fun. I was actually quite inspired at the time by Breaking Convention, which is sort of Europe's sort of leading psychedelic, uh, one of the largest psychedelic convention, I think. And I was really aware there that they had an exceptional kind of uh, really highbrow scientific program and all of the most important premier minds sort of from psychedelic research communities, but with the psychedelic community itself, essentially just people who were psychedelic users or engaged in kind of psychedelia in a much broader sense, uh, and just watching them interact and watching the value of bringing that together as a whole community and, and, as you say, having many more kind of aspects and elements and absolutely fun. It was that aspect of Breaking Convention that I felt that I wanted to emulate in some sense, but in this kind of broader sphere of our culture. Yeah, there's there's some a culture in uh, Breaking Convention, it seems to me, but, but it's not the central thing. It's just one possible ingredient in, in the stuff people are doing. Yes, it's absolutely. And I mean, there's there's been conversations that I've had with people heavily involved in Breaking Convention, like Julian Vane and others, about this heavy overlap between kind of esoteric magical communities and psychedelic communities, and for obvious reasons. And it fascinates both of us and many others, actually, that that rainbow elephant in the room doesn't actually get discussed as, as, as much as it might. That's why a term like our culture is really valuable because there's so much interaction between rave culture and EDM and the free festival movement and and 
the magical communities and and psychedelic communities and so on and then they they overlap very very heavily within individuals and there is some of that so so when we trans states looks at sort of traditional esotericism for sure but it does also include kind of neo-shamanism and 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 psychedelic aspects as well it considers that part of its remit Mm. now you say there's some crossover there obvious for obvious reasons but it might not be obvious and in fact the term a culture might be unfamiliar to many of our listeners our listeners are if they're really staying with the podcast as we're presenting it are you know pretty familiar with some important strands of thinking from the Bronze Age to about the beginning of the 4th century CE at this stage. While a culture is a fairly recent term coined to talk about fairly recent movements, right? What is a culture as a heuristic category? I mean, first of all, it's pretty difficult to define. It was introduced by Christopher Partridge in uh, uh, his two-part volume re-enchanting the west actually a correction on that it's it's not a contemporary uh and that's something that sort of partridge has been really clear about in his later work is that in when he initially introduced all culture as a sociological kind of category and concept uh, within that volume he really focuses on how it functions in a contemporary milieu but he's very, very clear in his later work that it's not contemporary and all culture can be found anywhere there's culture. And so actually it does translate to more uh, historical context as well. Right. But, but I guess, and as I say, the, the, you know, if you go to any conference and someone starts defining all culture, they'll often draw from different parts of that and you get quite disparate kind of concepts. But broadly speaking, all culture is about... Uh, the extent to which in what people view as disenchantment we could have an argument about whether the extent to which that is or isn't a thing but when we see disenchantment it's often the case that people are not being less religious but more being differently religious and all culture is looking at how kind of traditional forms of religiosity the signs and symbols and practices thereof um, are appropriated and disseminated through popular culture and not always necessarily in a religious context. So all culture is all of the kind of uh, practices and beliefs and networks and fora within which these kind of religious ideas are circulated uh, and, and remixed. Actually. Right. And he makes a very clear link to remix culture. I think the remix is really important because... Um, yeah, you know, especially today, we can see this happening. But I think this could have, if we were, if we could go back and be on the ground in like third century Alexandria, we would see exactly the same thing happening. And a lot of work has been done on this in modern esotericism, whereby uh, ideas from the occult get drawn into popular culture. Let's say uh, 1970s occult horror movies, just because that's a favorite genre of mine, right? But then real magical practitioners and esoteric religious movements and let's say druids and people like that watch those movies have their minds blown and the next time they do a ritual you know there's a little element of wicker man vibe in there or there's a little element of that hp lovecraft movie they saw thrown in so the active what you might call really religious stuff right practical religion in some way is there's feedback back loops between it and pop culture and then back yeah and then forth and back and forth and back and forth so it's this discourse community and that's why i think the term a culture is a very useful one 
Absolutely right. And I think that's what it is. It is the, uh, you know, it's this ongoing cultural process. Uh, and, and, and my sense is it has something to do with, and that's why it relates to like remix as well, is it's, it's an engine partially for bringing in kind of like novel aspects into culture. And also from the religious aspect, I think because religious experience has to do with like radical alterity, right? It's alterity. It's like this, uh, ineffable otherness that we're often talking about in this subject area of which nothing can be said of these kind of experiences of gnosis, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, well, then often when, when, when people are having these experiences, these experiences are kind of clothed within the cultural fabric that people find themselves embedded in, you know, and a lot's been said about this. So Partridge himself kind of talked about the similarity between like say ascended masters and theosophy and and the ufology kind of experience and 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 again others like kripal and so on have talked about how the how the angel you know uh, or the or the the channeled entity or the ufo all of this really is essentially just different cultural trappings to explain messages from the beyond like from something which is like ineffable and incomprehensible in some sense mm -hmm. and all culture all culture really is the kind of uh, the broadest category that kind of looks at that uh, looks at both that specific process but then also how these ideas are then passed around in the broader culture like through the various networks okay cool so going back to trans states it seems to me an interesting yeah. bit of background here right is for the last uh, few decades 40, 50 years, there's been this this steadily growing movement toward a, a dry scientific academic study of Western esotericism, which is something yeah. we at the Schwepp value very much. And what has emerged to keen observers of the field, which should have been obvious at the beginning and probably was obvious to many, is that the second you write a dry academic article about some aspect of Western esotericism, especially if you're dealing with subjects like uh, magic, your audience of academics reads it and assesses it right but then there's also another audience that you might not have planned on which is going to be magic practitioners just to take the magic practitioner as as one example resulting in situations like for example the greek magical papyri in english by hans dieter betz from the university of chicago being from my anecdotal evidence maybe the single most widely read and used grimoire in the modern western magical tradition not western as a whole but uh let's say european diaspora magical tradition right loads of people when this book came out they were like yes finally a reliable way of doing these rituals without having to learn greek so that phenomenon is definitely part of what we do as scholars right and it seems to me one of the things trans states does is present that in a kind of little petri dish microcosm so we're not sort of ignoring it we're not pretending it's not happening we're actually kind of participating in it so we can doing as it were participant observation to use the academic anthropological term so we're getting involved and i'm going to come there as a scholar i'm not someone who does ritual magic per se but i might want to come and talk at trans states about i don't know ancient Platonism, let's say, ancient Hermitism. And, and people will be very interested in hearing that. But part of the audience that's interested in hearing that is going to come up to me afterwards and say, that has really, really given me some insights for new kind of uh, twist to this ritual 
practice I do. And then I'm going to, as a scholar, I'm going to go, damn, tell me about that. And they're going to say, well, I do this in this tradition. I'm like, okay, cool. Have you read this book? And then, and then my uh, academic understanding of that particular little nuance of religious practice is going to increase because I'm, I'm doing a bit of a anthropological research by talking to this person. And so right. it's this, it's like this sort of very uh, almost accelerationist approach to this process of a culture vis-a-vis academic production. Right. That's, that, that's a beautiful little tableau of exactly the sort of thing that goes on at trans states. And, and it is that accelerationism and that purposeful bringing together of, of, of those groups in a space which makes those interactions much more fruitful and, 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 and the building of those networks as well. And I think, because it's not uncommon, of course, for people in communities of which certain parts of the academy are studying to be interested in what the academics have to say because there's a great deal of respect for the approach and the dedication that they have to their subject area uh, and anyone that's interested in you know you know real knowledge the validity of truth claims academia definitely has a really important place i wouldn't be an academic if i didn't think so but especially in the esoteric community is that uh, interplay really fruitful because often practitioners are independent scholars uh, to, to varying degrees of quality, but some of them to an incredibly high degree, you know, and they will be as well read in the uh, academic literature as, as any uh, of, of my academic colleagues. And I think they tend to be bibliophiles. They tend to be because they're esotericists themselves. They're on this knowledge quest. And so that really fascinates me. And then I think for a fairly long time, as we know, esotericism was very much set up through a history of religion, study of religion, very much focused on historicizing. And partly because of its value in um, making it very clear of the academic having this outsider status, you know, you know, it's very clear that, in, you know, in the history of religion, you know, religion's the subject and history's the method and it's very it's very clear delineation. And that has been changed slightly with kind of introduction of sociology and anthropology and particularly the participant observation kind of approach. And we have had some pretty major kind of studies now of, of, of people in the study of esotericism sort of taking a very clear participant observation anthropological uh, ethnographic kind of angle. So that's been around for a fair while. It's even been used as an excuse, I think. Like I've seen academic colleagues at other very practitioner-based conferences who've seen me there and then immediately had a look of slight panic and being like, oh, I'm, 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 I'm here working, by the way. This is participant observation, just so we're clear. Uh, and it's funny, I'm, I'm suspicious to the extent that that's been used uh, maybe to excuse covert practitioner status or at least interest at times. But the, so that has emerged and is emerging more and more strongly. But I come from an entirely different field. I'm, I'm not in the study of religions. I'm not a historian. Uh, I'm in media communication and culture, which is an interdisciplinary subject, first of all. But secondly, it's a subject where the practitioner scholar is probably the norm. Right. Now, obviously, practitioners being used in two different senses here, but actually, I feel, I feel there's a lot of important things to be drawn from that. And so, in, in my subject, it's absolutely the norm. Uh, pedagogically with our with uh, with our students 
we always teach integrated theory and practice because when we're looking at the processes of cultural production, we feel it's an absolute necessity for them to both have grounded theory in it, but also to engage in the practice because the artifacts that they produce and the work that they write is considered a whole body of knowledge that speaks to each other in a really important way. And so I'm personally of the opinion that you know, this kind of practitioner-scholar approach using, you know, even more kind of radical qualitative methods like autoethnography or, uh, what well, I don't know, like action research or, you know, that th 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 these things in a lot of other subject areas have been front and center for a very long time. And I, and I see value in bringing them to the field of esotericism as well, not to replace any of the other methodological approaches, but to give a more holistic understanding. Like me, it makes no sense whatsoever to not be looking at this, you know, subject from as many different directions as possible. And instead of being suspicious from the outset, you know, let the work be judged on the quality of its methodology and then the quality of its scholarship. My concern is that if, if one is already suspicious for, uh, considered suspicious for being open about a practitioner status, that uh, I, I think that this, uh, this has the potential to diminish the subject area and deny it of potentially really valuable kind of new vistas of knowledge, which I think is really ironic. Uh, in a field that's kind of uh, that's often using kind of the working definition of a waste paper basket of rejected knowledge, that it's possibly rejecting other forms of legitimate knowledge by being adverse, at least, to these perfectly legitimate methodological approaches, which clearly have something to say. Uh, more, even more than that, I would go one step further and say that. I think if you have a community where it's seen as a bit of a professional possible risk to be open about these things and therefore you're not being forthright about them and therefore just keeping your kind of interests, possible practices or at least interests in esotericism secret, that there's actually a risk of like intellectual dishonesty in that. That, that, that actually, that yeah, that uh, people deserve to be aware of your positionality with regards to your to your work, you know. And that's which is one of the reasons that I'm really open about it. Mm. Um, and then I know I've droned on for a long time, but if I could just add one more point to that, I think for what I've noticed by going through all of the literature on the insider-outsider debate in the study of religion and, and in um, study of esotericism, and particularly in pagan studies, which came under quite a lot of flack for being considered problematic in this respect. Is that going I back think, to sort of Tanya Lerman's big book and yeah, stuff like that? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, and, and, and then on from that, because people in pagan studies have been, there have been problems like Marco Pazzi drew attention to a particular academic conference in pagan studies where they were kind of in their materials, they were using the term we and speaking about both the pagan community and the scholarly community and there was no clear discernment between the two. That sort of thing is a problem. So it's not like there aren't problems that need to be overcome. But I think that in having a look through all of this literature, one of the main concerns was, was 
uh, a concern about a religionist agenda, right, which is something Walter Hanegraaff has talked about a great deal and about how that might be its own kind of, I think there's an issue around the, the possibility of credulity in having a believer status or something like this. Yeah. And for me, being open about being a practitioner, but I'm, I'm also deeply skeptical, uh, subscribe to multi-model agnosticism. I'm absolutely not a believer whatsoever. And being interested in practices and experimenting phenomenologically with practice doesn't necessitate a belief or a believer status it doesn't need to be a religionist approach whatsoever which again is something that confuses me because this is at the core of much of contemporary uh, all culture of course crowley was very clear about this being his position whether that's true or not he certainly laid it out as such and then this kind of uh results focused practice only approach then feeds into chaos magic and so on and and all culture and the esoteric community is rife with agnostics and atheists and so it's not necessarily about these practices don't need to be about a believer status and 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 the concern that if you're willing to believe something which others might think is a ridiculous thing to believe that somehow that might undermine your scholarship it's just you know it doesn't necessarily need to be about that mm. So, Kevin, you raise a lot of really interesting um, perspectives there. One thing I would say, vis-a-vis the suspicion that, let's say, classical academe would cast on participatory approaches to stuff, um, the the kind of agnostic, non-believer attitude that's been very much, as you say, cultivated by Aleister Crowley in a programmatic way, and also by people like uh, Robert Anton Wilson in, to, in a way that has just exploded into modern culture, um, right. isn't by any means the whole story of Western esotericism. So, for example, um, stuff I will be studying and, and talking about when we get to um, the 21st century in the podcast, by which point it'll probably be the 22nd century, but anyway, uh, will be, you know, people who actually believe in uh, I mean, this is much more prevalent outside the Christian world, but it still exists in the Christian world. People who believe in jinns, people who believe in, uh, you know, like in, in Israel, that magic plays a, a big role in politics. Same in Iran. Um, they, there, there are esoteric traditions alive today where that kind of agnostic, free-flowing, post-Crowleyan vibe isn't, isn't the, the thing. So that's one thing. Uh, another point I wanted to bring up is, well, here's one thing uh, that totally supports what you're saying. In my own study, I've had to look at uh, the history of Hellenistic astro- astrology, astronomy, astrology. Um, it's it's essential. It's the roots of all the astrological traditions. Even Indian astrology is you know d- indebted to this stuff. No one, but no one, really understands it in in the way that would be considered sort of. Uh, to a scholarly level, except people who are in some way astrologers, let's say, loosely, who in some way think there's more to astrology than just exploded pseudoscience, right? Uh, if you right. want to understand astrology in a way, ancient astrology in a way that would be considered satisfactory to a historian of ideas, you need an astrologer. It's that simple. And not mo- most astrologers don't understand Hellenistic astrology at all, so you need astrologers who are also literate in Greek 
and maybe even became literate in Greek because they wanted to go back to the roots of Hellenistic astrology, right? So absolutely, if you are going to just do a blanket ban on people who are interested in this or that rejected idea, your historical scientific study of ideas is going to suffer massively. Another thing I wanted to bring up is it's not just as simple as, and this is again supporting what what you're saying and and kind of maybe bringing out an interesting aspect of it. Uh, It's not as simple as just saying um, believers, let's say, are not able to have a, a critical or objective approach to material. It's the type of believer. Because if you look at the biblical critical uh, movement of approaching the Bible that really grew up, especially in Germany, but also the Anglosphere and the French world in the 19th century, whereby people started to look at the what was formerly simply the books of Moses and say, ah, this is more than one text. This has been cobbled together. Maybe there's a lost source text for some of this stuff, etc., etc., Um, When we look at the New Testament, we can see lying behind the Synoptic Gospels, there's a lost source, which most people agree must have existed, etc. All this kind of stuff, this really, really painstaking sifting of texts and looking at their evolution. Almost everyone who was doing this, and and this really threatened a lot of Christian believers and maybe Jewish believers as well, who who wanted this to be the the word of God without without a textual history. It's a sort of a sui generis text that, unlike other texts, doesn't none of the usual textual rules apply to it, right? This is really threatening to them. All of this work, I mean, I haven't studied this really in depth, but it seems to me, anecdotally, all of this work is done by Christians, mostly by Christian divines, like monks and members of um, Catholic orders and stuff like that. So these people are not atheists setting out to demolish Christianity. They're deeply committed Christians who are doing incredibly threatening work to some Christians, but basically for, to them, it's not threatening at all. It's just simply getting into the history of these texts, right? Now, no one questions their right to study this stuff critically and objectively. So I think the difference maybe is between, it's not just that you're a believer, so therefore you can't be rational, objective, scientific. It's, you know, what kind of believer are you? Christianity makes the cut, or at least did in the 19th century. I mean, even today, biblical studies departments are full of Christians, right? And no one says, your work is a priori rubbish because you're a Christian. They read the work and say, oh, this shows a Christian bias, or this doesn't show a Christian bias. But if you're like, I'm an astrologer, and I'm going to do a, a piece of historical work on the evolution of this particular aspect of astrological belief in the ancient world, people are going to say, uh, you don't get to publish in our academic journal, you get to publish in that New Age magazine, in a worst-case scenario. That's the, in a, that's a in caricature a, a, of the situation. Anyway. Yeah, 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 in a worst-case scenario. And yeah, so in response to that, yeah, I mean, I just wanted to raise this not insubstantial group within our culture that have this kind of non-believer status. It's certainly not the whole story, yeah. uh, not even the majority. I just thought it was important to recognize that this kind of issue of credulity and, and faith doesn't have to even necessarily be an issue. But it's certainly been brought up, you know, with respect to religionist approaches and believer status in particularly other fields in the study of religion. But of course, if you're if you're a Christian, if you're a Buddhist, if you're a Muslim or whatever, these are orthodox. And I think I think that because in the study of 
esotericism, by definition, you're looking at rejected knowledge. You're looking at something subversive. Hmm. I think that there was just a little bit more sort of protectionism around this and sort of people's concerns about not just issues of objectivity, but because of the actual subject area, the subject matter itself being subversive in some sense. And so they wanted to be especially clear that there was distance from it in that regard. Yeah. Uh, but obviously, you know, it, 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 ideally it should go without saying there's no room in the academy for people that are incapable of separating faith and reason when looking at these subject areas. And that should be true across um, all kind of aspects of the study of religion. So uh, sure, if you're incapable of keeping your kind of faith-related belief aspects of your own kind of personal worldview out of your scholarship, then then that's not good scholarship. But as we've discussed, that will be seen in the scholarship or should be seen in the scholarship. And I even have some kind of understanding of as a, a young subject area, as a subject area that's maybe open to a little bit more possible criticism than some others about concerns about whether it's a legitimate field of study, et cetera, et cetera. I do understand why they've treaded carefully. I just would like to be part of a more open conversation about whether it's time and indeed necessary to start kind of making those shifts, not from the only from the point of view of recognizing as we're kind of like discussing now that such suspicions aren't necessarily warranted and people are perfectly capable of maintaining this kind of ethic analysis, this kind of like distance from the material, but also just the value, in fact, that these practitioner scholars bring to the field. In fact, uh, Walter Hanegraaff just a few days ago published a new article about Antoine Favre, mm. who, of course, is the foundational scholar in 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 the field of, of study of western esotericism and the subtitle of that paper was insight the insider as outsider uh, and in that he's talking of course there's maybe a suggestion that he he, he accepts uh a father's religionist status he accepts his kind of his practice and his engagement in, in, in kind of esotericism, and even that there was some kind of work that maybe had more of a religionist kind of focus, although he gives more kind of respect and credence to the more clearly defined historical outsider work that Favre did. But then he did mention in that article that it was very much a part of a whole understanding of him as an individual as well as a scholar, that his openness to some of these esoteric practices was actually linked to his intellectual openness about new possible perspectives. And so I'm reading that article going, well, doesn't that beg the question that maybe his openness to like new perspectives and ideas is was a really important aspect in him being instrumental in the foundation of an entirely new field of study? You know, that, that's my takeaway from that is that I'm just worried about what's being lost in, in this kind of as we say, I'm trying to. I always try and find the right words to do it because it's not, it's not an explicit denial 
of folks willing to put forward this work. But I feel just like a very slight, gentle suspicion or a quiet word. Are you, are you sure you want to be quite so open about those things, you know, around a dinner table with, a, with maybe a follow-up of just amongst friends? I'm possibly interested in this, that, and the other, but, you know? And so I, I don't want to push that too hard because people have the right to their privacy, you know? But I do genuinely worry about... Um, because when you're dealing with scholars that are, are, are being very open about their own kind of faith-based position, then all that requires is rigorous work, a reflexive kind of approach, being very clear about their positionality, and, and it can absolutely be tackled. And I just worry about what understanding and knowledge might be lost if we don't create an environment which is more open and welcoming to these kinds of approaches. Amen. Let me just pause and say, uh, requiescat in pace to the great Professor Fevre, who passed away recently. Um, and unfortunately, I'll never be able to rectify this now, but I did have a... Uh, an invitation to come to Paris and interview him for the Schwepp to talk about his baby, the the whole field of Western esotericism studies. I never took him up on that, and now I don't have the chance. So, this is that, um, is, that is a great loss. It is a great loss. It is really sad, but um, God bless him. He he he's an interesting case because he um, was a sort of later generation member of the Aranos Circle and and was involved, as you say, in any number of cultural practices, which could be part considered part of it, Western esotericism. And, and I mean, not just on the fringes, but really proper, yeah. proper kind of Jacobermian type stuff. And not just participant observation by any. Yeah, but he, he underwent a shift in his thinking over the right. years, at least vis-a-vis how this should be presented as a form of study and how yep. it should exist within academe and came very much to be against what Hanukkah, which is generally called religious approaches, just, you know, yeah. you can't just be blathering on. You need to be rigorous and critical and kind of adopt, let's say, the the conventions of history as a, as a methodology, as a discipline to present this stuff. It doesn't really matter what your beliefs are. It's about the the work that you're putting out. And the work can't be a kind of echo chamber with no footnotes like occult publishing tends to be, right? It needs to be verifiable, checkable, based on sources, etc. And so he he really underwent a, a kind of conversion <laughs> to a more academic approach, a more academic style, you could even say, methodology, over time, and came to be very critical of people doing the kind of work he did in his early decades, when he was publishing the first incarnation of Ares, the uh, Journal of Esotericism, when it was just esotericists writing for esotericists, like many other cool, high-quality occult periodicals that's, that exist. Uh, he was like, no, 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 I want to do something different. Yeah, but I think we've already spoke to that because, mm. you know, it's, of course, a given scholar will often become dedicated to a particular methodological approach. And I respect and admire and see the need for that methodological approach. But again, I'm in my own, you know, subject area has 
a, a, a much broader range of methodological approaches and even arts-based research approaches. And they have their own value, you know? And I think, you know, there's, you know, this is just a really simple case of more is more and gives us better insight for those of us that want to kind of, um, uh, that are interdisciplinary or, or even more, you know, transdisciplinary, you know, seeking to, to really reach across all of those kind of perceived boundaries and, and, and categorical distinctions. And so I totally understand how that happened for him and value it. So I, I guess I'm just making calls like, let's not immediately devalue some of these other approaches. Because, mm. of course, when you're looking at when you're looking at like cultural artifacts and cultural texts, um, again, in my home sort of discipline, uh, of course, looking at that retrospectively as an act of postmortem, right? That's never going to go away as an important aspect. Uh, you know, and then there's even some debate about sort of the value of like within context and without context and whether the contextualization of an artist or, or, or a producer, you know, is relevant to what the scholarly analysis of it, uh, you know. And again, for me, the obvious answer is, well, both have value in different ways. But of course, then practitioner scholars, people that bridge both fields, uh, both aspects, you know, they can they can push that examination into like a more intimate sphere and they can engage in the act of creation of particular cultural texts and artifacts. And that will give them more knowledge and understanding about the kind of processes involved, which hopefully again, uh, you know, once they write that up, that material may be of value and of use to people taking a much more uh, objective outsider status because they're they're definitely interested right in ethnography and engaging with these communities uh and i think practitioner scholars they they have a uh their own kind of particular value when having some understanding of of, of like both of these worlds shall we say you know and uh, being able to offer assist with entryism like you know uh you know it's it's often practitioner scholars that are helping make connections with these kind of esoteric communities and so on and so forth um yeah so yeah agreed another thing that bears emphasizing to just emphasize something you've already said for listeners who might not be familiar with it is that if you're going to have an academic study of let's say film or yeah visual art or many other artistic endeavors at all, the participant observation is and and practitioner research is is already the, almost the only way forward. So these are methodologies that already have a, a long history of argument and refinement and methodological oh, scrutiny yeah. going back decades yes. and decades within academia. They're just being kind of that that spotlight, that methodological spotlight, is being refocused on field that doesn't that historically hasn't had uh, as much of it and as you say probably one of the reasons for that not having as as much of it historically hasn't been methodological it's been strategic right. it's been we need to carve a little respectability niche within academe and then once we're established we can uh, get more methodologically rich absolutely it's been it's been strategic and it's been a legitimizing tactic. Yeah. Um, however, it has 
I believe on occasion bloodied the nose of the esoteric community, you know, more widely, where they've been, uh, you know, there's been where they haven't always felt that they've been happy with sort of being utilized or engaged with by scholars of esotericism and then kind of, uh, but, but kind of respected or presented. There's an ethics issue with regards to how, you know, they've been interacted with or, or presented within the scholarship. Um, fair enough, fair enough. I mean, that ethics issue is real, but that being said, um, I, I very much value the the tradition of studying religious communities and other communities of people kind of without regard to their feelings about it in this in the sense that you know if 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 i want to do a an expose of to take an example of something i know a little bit about like um north american radical protestants as a religious movement right i'm going to offend a load of fundamentalist north american radical protestants whatever i say because i'm not going to say well you know the bible is the literal word of god and 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 this group of Baptists in Kentucky is doing exactly what the early church was doing in the first century in Galilee. That's just not historically accurate. I'm not going to say it's historically accurate. And they're going to be like, how dare you? You know, so you just ignore their their feelings to some degree. Right. And I mean, that's like, don't get me wrong. I'm, 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 I'm also totally fine with that, you know, if and when it's appropriate. Mm. Um, but, you know, there's this, this is again about having a, a broad range. Like, I'm, I'm all for intellectual freedom. Uh, and people absolutely have the right, you know, so we don't have to necessarily protect people from offence. Um, but there are pragmatics involved as well. Like mm. in those kinds of studies that you're talking about, those probably aren't participatory for the most part. But maybe they are, maybe they aren't. But when once we, once we start engaging, engaging directly with human participants, there are ethical considerations that need to be uh, brought to bear. But I, yeah, look, I understand that, and I even have, uh, uh, you know, like people who even want to be like polemicists and whatever there's 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 room for that too it just so happens that um i'm personally interested in building building bridges yeah that makes sense if i'm a transdisciplinarian right part of the remit of trans states it is about like a, a unification type process and trying to build bridges and again we're just one approach amongst many because I, I, I see the value in that in relation to networking and in relation to building up forms of knowledge which necessarily are bridging categorical distinctions, which is what we like to do. But I don't see it as the only way, not necessarily even the best way, just one that I'm particularly suited to and drawn to and value. That's, yeah. that's all. Mm. We'll keep on keeping on. It's a good conference. What are some other problems with the trans states uh, project that we haven't talked about? So being critical of your own, what you do and, and, you know, the problems you run into. There are a few, I guess. I mean, there's because of the subject matter, it, you know, it can raise eyebrows. I'm deeply aware that, as we've already discussed, these the very nature of these uh, of the of, of our culture more broadly in these subject areas is that they are subversive 
um, and I'm bringing them into an institutional setting, yeah, which is highly structured. And there is kind of like a slightly oppositional defiance aspect to that. Even purposefully, I probably get a little bit of, of, of enjoyment out of doing that, if I'm totally honest. Um, but, you know, that can be because some of these things can feel controversial for some. So that can be one aspect of it. And I guess another thing that I'm aware of is, and actually one of the trans states that you attended and, and you spoke to this on one of our panels during the questioning, and you raised the point that, that an academic conference in itself is a ritual. Uh, and then I believe later I heard on this podcast that you mentioned uh, trans states and as a side and had said something about how I'd stretched the, the the concept of the traditional academic conference as far as I possibly could without breaking it, uh, which I saw as hugely complimentary because that's precisely what's going on here. So as someone who's studying media communications and culture, I'm deeply aware, like my view in the world is always of these kind of structures and institutions and cultural programs that are constantly running in society, um, sometimes openly, sometimes, you know, sort of uh, beneath the radar and, and people aren't, to the extent to which people are aware or less aware of these structures and programs, it varies from person to person. And a lot of what we're doing with our students is drawing attention to cultural programming, to kind of like structures and institutional aspects of society that if they're not paying attention to them and they're not being critical, that they probably are controlling them in some sense and that that's disempowering and cultural studies is so concerned with power. So in order for it to be an academic conference and to be seen as an academic conference, then I have to have a certain amount of the traditional ritual material included so that everybody recognizes it as such. But then I'm also trying to bring to bear a sense of like radicalism, uh, a novelty, uh, and that's the kind of anti-structural element. And, and so it's, it's a really fine line that I have to walk to make sure that it's accepted by both parties. And I think that's where similar kind of conferences and conventions have struggled in the past of like walking that line correctly, you know. Take, for example, when there's ritual aspect included in something like trans states, which, and I mean specifically practitioners wanting to do something like an esoteric ritual, yeah, then that sort of thing does happen, but will be recategorized as performance art, right? Yeah. And legitimately will be performance art. But what's interesting is I've seen in other conferences where they've had just an actual ritual ceremony like an opening ceremony or a closing ceremony and i personally i would see that as like a step too far for me but i do sit and wonder about this and ponder and go like but if we're doing the same action and it's like a a, a terminological distinction you know then i have to sit like late at night stroking my beard thinking about like how i feel about that and and, and you know these are some of the Many, many issues I have. I'm like, you know, to what extent then am I being a trickster? Is that is that okay? What are the ethics of that, et cetera, et cetera? So it also can just be difficult bringing large groups of disparate people together yeah. and that being 
you know that 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 not causing sort of like difficult interactions and such but then this is not a great joy i get from the conference is that i can have like an orthodox christian and someone who self-identifies as a satanist getting on you know really well and being able to see kind of like aspects of their their interests which have like overlap which you know was something mm. that i never necessarily immediately expected to happen and it's this kind of like uh radical bridge building that i'm that i find really really interesting actually yeah well and i think that speaks to a more basic human um experience it seems to me which is probably also experienced by organizers of regular academic conferences but also experienced by anyone who's ever thrown a party if you've thrown enough parties <laughs> you know what the difference between the feeling you have the next day when you had a really good party and you know when it was a really good party right and it's never just you it's also your folks your team your mates everyone working together and you created that thing known as a phenomenally good party when everyone yeah. left and you know smiles on all the faces knowing nods like nice one and then when you throw a party and it's a bit awkward and it's a bit rubbish maybe in the context of a dinner party where like the, the one guy was dominating the conversation the whole time and it was a bit awkward and it kind of sucked same with conferences some are boring and stiff and lame and then some have this synergy that vibes and you just everyone had everyone leaves inspired and um smiling and going oh i can't wait for the next one that's something you get with a good trans states uh, but it's it's more universal it's it's that just i think it's just that we threw a really good party last night it was fucking cool right because we we, we need that we need the we need the pre-existing structures like mm. again in society generally because this is this is you know we need that to make space for community because people have to kind of know what the expectations yeah. are of the community and we need it for cooperation and to build on um but then yeah you, there needs to be enough room to be able to uh sit outside of those kind of like structures and programs to allow for the novel and for like the, the more radical yeah. openness and stuff so, so it's, it just it's really exhausting trying to constantly keep that that tightrope walk uh, yeah. with the conference but all the time it's exhausting to throw a great party right <laughs> yeah sure that's why you need other people to throw great parties that you're just attending but not organizing yourself because you can't be organizing good parties all year long. It's impossible, right? But you, occasionally you organize one and it's wicked and that has a special satisfaction all its own, right? And if you organize one that has enough success, then I guess, you know, similar to me being inspired by aspects of breaking convention, you know, then this will, this will add to the cultural conversation by other people wanting to kind of replicate the best practice or the aspects of what you did that worked you mm. know so you know that's 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 a cultural service in itself i think yeah so trans states 2022 what's on the menu trans states 2022 we have at trans states to kind of uh um clarify this sort of level status we always have we always have keynotes that range across leading scholars in the field of the study of esotericism to leading practitioners as well. So we always have practitioners, esoteric practitioners as keynotes. In this iteration, we have Lionel Schnell, famously under the pen name Ramsey Dukes. He's going to be giving a keynote. And we have Eric Davis, 
who's just just a, a wonderful human being, but actually someone who's bridging that gap himself a little, I guess, you know? Or a lot. Uh, we've, we've, he's a friend of the podcast and we've interviewed him on Philip K. Dick. And then the, yeah. the, the interview went off into a, a bunch of other uh, really, really interesting tangents. So, uh, you know, was was both, I, I mean, I, I was saying a little in, in uh, being playful, obviously, but yeah, was always, was always an incredible independent scholar, but now, you know, has kind of like uh, demonstrated his, you know, institutionally with PhD status now. But yeah, he's wonderful and I'm incredibly excited that he's coming. Uh, and then uh, Christine Ferguson, who's, uh, uh, you know, a leading scholar in the field of Western esotericism. Those are our keynotes. And then beyond that, we will have all of the usual. We will have traditional scholarly papers. We will have performances. Each of the previous trans states has kind of like been... Uh, in terms of its topic, based on a tarot card, and not always the most obvious of tarot cards. The first one was the hanged man, and we looked at sort of liminality and boundary crossing. And the second one was the tower, uh, which in hindsight may have been a poor choice. <laughs> Tempting fate. <laughs> Tempting fate. This one, we're going for uh, the magician card, and so we're going to be looking at all things sort of technological communications and the trickster archetype. But this means we're actually going to have some like practical stage magic at the conference, which I'm, nice. I'm, I'm, I'm quite excited about. Uh, and there's always uh, uh, an associated exhibition uh, as well. We're very excited about this one. Um, it's had uh, uh, a little bit of, of an evolution based on the kind of materials that have been put forward. So our curator, Elizabeth Palmer, last time she produced you know, a very much a, a traditional white room exhibition, which was appropriate for the amount of visual material that we had. But this time it's probably going to be more of a black box. It's going to be much more multimedia and sound art. And then there will be, we always build in an actual kind of social evening event as well. You know, as I said, often these non-formalized sort of liminal spaces and conferences is where a lot of the important work happens and attendees try and organize themselves. Whereas, in, you know, we try and actually create a bit of a structure, dare I say, where they can all come together, both in their kind of uh, their, their, their downtime when they, when they metaphorically let their hair down, as well as sort of within the kind of uh, daytime program. So it'll be over two days on the 9th and 10th of September in Northampton at the University of Northampton. See you there. Hopefully at the end of it all, you're going to look back on it with a big smile on your face and say, damn, that was a good party. Absolutely. I, it takes a lot out of me. It's a labor of love, but it's one of the most important things in my life. And I feel a great privilege to have been so fortunate as this, this idea to have chosen me, you know, because uh, sort of speaking of occultural kind of practices, it's definitely something that like came through me and happened to me. And, uh, and it's a juggernaut that I'm just like chasing. Everyone likes a good party. Gavin McLaughlin, stay esoteric. You too. Take care.